Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. You know, Christian, it, it seems that we should be able to look at where we've been in the past and therefore uh, extrapolate, predict, even simulate where we're going in the future, right? It does. It does seem that way. And I think that that maybe is a product of like the last century of our uh, scientific thinking. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely one line in particular that we're that we're often referring to, and uh, and and generally misquoting. I think a lot of the time, and that comes from uh, philosopher Georgia Santayana, who said, "Quote: Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it." Mm-hmm. That would, of course, tend to imply, "Hey, if you can remember the past, then you can avoid these pitfalls in the future." That there's some. Uh, there's some system that can be employed that even though we're we're strapped to this linear existence, just hurtling through time into the future, um, if, if we have some concept of the road that we've traveled, we'll have a better idea about the road to come. Right. Yeah. And so to bring it back around to our uh, nerdiness uh, <laughs> and our fandom for Stephen King and uh, the newly popular uh, Dark Tower universe. Uh, there's a quote from King here that he used in the stand under the guise of Randall Flagg. Life was such a wheel that no man could stand upon it for long, and it always, at the end, came round to the same place again. Uh, this is a terrifying concept, though, right? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it is an idea that seems to fill a lot of people with purpose, because they can say, ah, hold on, wait, I've got it figured out and I can predict what's going to happen next. And in fact, we had a listener write in to us about this very idea. Her name's Allison, and she wrote us and said she was wondering if we would do a show about, this is something that's been mentioned a lot on the internet lately, an apparent 80-year cycle of political social upheaval in our world. Uh, And she said she was horrified and intrigued the first time that she heard about it. And so she started looking into this. Uh, and she said that she's heard about the idea in general, but that this, the whole like 75 to 80 year cycle as a devastating shakeup, whether it's via war, war or turmoil was kind of new, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, she wanted to know if we could do some research on it and see what we came up with and provide some perspective on it. And interestingly, cause I have also heard about this in the last couple of months, um, we did the research and it turns out that the one that's making the rounds is not the one that is being academically researched. There's like a little bit of a, a confabulation going on here between two different uh, specific theories. And one is more – well, I guess we can describe them as the 50-year theory and the 80-year theory. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and these this is this is uh this is getting into a, a realm of what is known as cleodynamics. Uh, that is uh, C-L-I-O dynamics. Yeah, so this is a field where scientists are attempting to find meaningful patterns in history. And it was named by a guy named Peter Turchin. We're going to talk a lot about him today. After Cleo, the ancient Greek muse of history. I have been having the hardest time remembering this name. Try You came up with a good uh, idea earlier. Picture Cleo as Miss Cleo the Psychic. Yes. Uh, the other one I'm thinking is like Letters to Cleo Dynamics. Okay. Like I got to figure out a way to remember this because it's been hard for me. But anyways, there's been a swell of efforts to apply scientific methods to history by identifying and modeling broad social forces. And one argument in favor of this is that historians are too qualitative and that they point to samples of cases from observations that Cleo Dynamics wants to use tools like nonlinear mathematics and simulations that can model the interactions of millions of people at once. Now, I want to be clear about this up front. It's criticized by traditional historians. They usually believe that there are countless variables interacting within a society that lead to violence and social unrest. And they don't think that there's any one unified theory or general law to history. So, so what are we talking about here then? Well, we're looking at uh, decades or even century-long periods of population expansion followed by long periods of stagnation or decline, price dynamics mirroring population oscillations, 
Strong expansionist uh, phases followed by state failure, socio-political instability, and territory loss. Uh, repeated back and forth swings in demographic, uh, economic, social, and political structures. Uh, just to give you an idea of what what kind of patterns we're talking about here, when we're when you're imagining, say the the uh, Clio Dynamics weather person standing in front of a green screen, yeah. like these are the kind of movements they would be talking about or charting. Yeah. That's a perfect analogy. Yeah. Now, uh, an example I came across uh, is in the work of uh, two in- two individuals, one of, wh- of which we're going to talk about in, in greater depth: uh, Peter Turchin and Sergey A. Nefedov. Uh, and they have a book titled Secular Cycles in which they looked at England, France, and Russia throughout both the medieval and early modern periods. And they closely observe cycles of inequality. So uh, Nefedov has a, a great rundown of cleodynamics and, and economic in, inequality as well in uh, Ian Magazine and a couple of other uh, publications. I'll try to include a link to this on the landing page for the episode. But uh, he says that in this case, the, the cycles break down to this. You have expansion, stagnation, crisis, disintegration, sort of a, a life cycle, a, a story arc for uh, for civilization, right? However, uh, Nefedov is quick to point out that we're not talking about rigid clockwork here. So these cycles don't occur in a machine. They occur in a chaotic system in which a great number of variables play a part. So in, in a way, it is, it is a lot like the weather. The weather is a system. Mm-hmm. We know what what's factors influence the movements of atmosphere and weather patterns. But – there's so many. It's ultimately such a chaotic system. It becomes difficult to make, uh, you know, long-term predictions. Even short-term pre- predictions are 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 open to uh, to misinterpretation. Mm-hmm. And uh, as and, anybody who's checked the weather yeah. channel or their weather app on their phone and gone outside and it's raining yeah. has found. Yeah, it's not that a meteorologist doesn't know what they're talking about. Right. It's that the the system is just that complex and difficult to simulate, even with uh, with our most uh, complicated uh, simulation uh, systems. So. The idea here is that human cultures and civilizations also, they're bumping up against each other. They're influencing each other. Uh, so there are so many factors that make it complex. And it's, it's again, it's not as simple as just, you know, running a, a, a computer versus computer game inside of a, of a closed system. Still, he maintains that complex interactions do add up to a general rhythm. So if you kind of take a God's eye view of everything, the idea here is that, yes, you will see patterns emerge, and then you can extrapolate that to the future. So, so cleodynamics, then, is about observing these trends, observing these cycles, this ebb and flow, and then predicting them in the future. And you have a note here about Mercier Eliade's book, uh, The Terror of History, which I remember reading in grad school. Yeah, oh, yeah the, this was the myth sort of, of the eternal return. Yeah, yeah, yeah he was uh, involved in myth studies. Yeah, yeah. So he talks about this concept of the terror of history in which humanity has uh, abandoned a cyclical mythic view of time uh, that we used to have in favor of a purely linear existence. We're forced to see history for what it is, a senseless stream of blunders, atrocity, collapsed ideals, uh, fallen states, ruined mega projects, and just sort of failure in general. Um, Sounds like the greatest setting for a role-playing game. Yeah, yeah, but, it, but not one to live in. It's worth. It is legitimately worth thinking about when you're when you're toying with uh, you know Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. histories, you know, uh, or thinking about stuff like Game of Thrones. Oh but, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a reason why all of these like fantasy worlds that are built from the ground up have ruinous histories to them that that they kind of look back on and wonder. Yeah. So uh, here's a quote from uh, The Myth of the Eternal Return. Iliade says, quote, In our day when historical pressure no longer allows any escape, how can man tolerate the catastrophes and horrors of history? From collective deportations and massacres to atomic bombings, if beyond them he can glimpse no sign, no trans-historical meaning, if they are only the blind play of economic, social, or political forces, or even worse, only the result of the liberties that a minority takes and exercises directly on the stage of universal history. So Eliade says that for the longest, yeah, humans were able to place everything within a meta-historical framework. Uh, so, yeah, something fell apart because it was the end of a decadent age. It was the punishment of God, etc. Now, cleodynamics stands in an interesting place by comparison because they are, in a way, attempting to resurrect a cyclical view of history. They're 
they're turning not to divine mechanics, however, or the imagined astrological influence of the spheres, uh, but rather to a modeling of history's f- sort of fluid dynamics based on cultural evolution, uh, macro sociology, economics, and other factors. Plus, in a refreshingly optimistic humanist twist that I really like, it also opens the door for control over those cycles. Right, yeah. And I think that's absolutely crucial to keep in mind with all of this. It's not just another version of, oh, humanity is screwed and here's why. There's the potential for self-awareness here. There's the potential for change. Right. So the general methodology that's being used in these studies, at least at least Turchin's studies, is to focus on four main variables that are measured in several ways. And and Robert, you just mentioned many of these. He boils them down pretty quickly to population numbers, social structure, state strength, and political instability. And then he says the way to measure these is actually through proxies that are connected to these things that you can measure quantitatively. So he looks at, for instance, at social structure, he looks at the quantitative data on life expectancy and wealth inequality. And that's one of his measurement points. So who's this Peter Turchin guy that, that like has just come out of nowhere with the cleodynamics? At least it seems like that, right? He's actually been doing it for a while. He's an ecologist, an evolutionary biologist, and a mathematician out of the University of Connecticut in stores. He studies population dynamics and takes mathematical techniques that he used to use to try track predator-prey cycles in forest ecosystems, and then he applies those to human history. Now, Turchin looks at historical records of economic activity, demographic trends, and outbursts of violence in the United States. And he argues, history is not just one damn thing after another. His main research questions are essentially, first of all, what general mechanisms explain the collapse of historical empires? And then... How did large-scale states and empires evolve in the first place? So this is some pretty big, heady stuff when Mm -hmm. it comes to anthropology. Now, Turchin first conceived of cleodynamics in 1997 when he felt that all major ecological questions about population dynamics had been answered. So he turned to – that's a direct quote from him. That's not me. I I don't know necessarily that they have all been answered. But he turned to history. And actually, his father had previously looked into us. His father was Valentin Turchin, a computer scientist, and he had written dissident writings about the origins of totalitarianism that got him exiled from the Soviet Union in 1977. Now, the younger Turchin, he recognizes that this kind of search for patterns in history, this is not a new thing, right? Obviously, we're all familiar with the idea of there being a cyclical nature to history. I remember learning about this in like a, probably like a junior high uh, history class. Well, I mean, it's just basically pattern recognition in history class, right? Yeah. Oh, an empire rises and then it falls. You know, you have, you're going to end up with some sort of horrible emperor or ruler and then, then there's a revolution that happens. Like you just, yeah. you just begin to recognize the same uh, patterns within these different stories. And, yeah. That was the way it was framed to us when I was like, whatever, 12, maybe 13 years old. They were mm-hmm. essentially like war happens then like there's peace, then there's war, then there's peace, then there's war. And they happen in these – like they actually were able to – this elementary school t- teacher was able to map it out for us. you know, And that's essentially what he's doing but with just like a broader set of data points, right? And he's really currently focused on coordinating something called the CSHAT Global History Data Bank. And this is a database of history and cultural evolution that is hoped to be used to empirically test out theoretical predictions from cleodynamics. So they're essentially housing as much data as they possibly can gather to run these predictive models against. So there are a couple moments of other cleodynamics though too, right? And we don't want to confuse Turchin with too many of the other folks that are involved in this. And we haven't even gotten to the actual purported 80-year cycle that is making the rounds right now. What we're really talking about with Turchin is the 50-year and then 200-year cycles. But uh, there's actually – and uh, you and I both found this. There's a, a peer-reviewed journal on cleodynamics and it's open access, meaning yeah. anybody out there can get get it and you can share it and reuse it under a Creative Commons attribution. Uh, you'll find lots of different articles about cleodynamic views of history. I'll try to include a link to that on the landing page for this episode of StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yeah, so – 
here's a couple of people. Uh, they they have been doing similar work to Turchin, but they're not, you know, part of his necessary research project. So you've got Claudio Siofi Ravila, who is a computer social scientist in Virginia. Uh, they're trying to use Clio Dynamics by running simulations on computer models. Specifically, his team is looking at the Rift Valley region of East Africa and the effects of modern climate change there. And so they've seen that there was a drought there and then subsequently labor specialization and vulnerability emerged spontaneously. So they hope to be able to predict the flow of refugees and identify potential conflict hotspots in the region using, using these Clio dynamic methods. Another guy, Jack Goldstone, is the director of the Center for Global Policy at George Mason University. He's also a member of the Political Instability Task Force, which is funded by the CIA to forecast events outside of the United States. He's tried finding patterns in past revolutions, and he projects that Egypt will actually have a few more years of struggle and another five to ten years of rebuilding its institutions before it can regain stability. Now, this is in reference to the Arab Spring Revolution of 2011. Uh, that might be a little bit – This the, the information here might have been written closer to that date than to our present date. So I, I take those, those uh, numbers with a grain of salt. Goldstone, though – thinks that Clio Dynamics is only useful for looking at broad trends and not useful for predicting unique events. So he wanted to be clear about that. I think that's important to note. And, and when we get into criticism later, you do find that it's not necessarily the situation where people are like, Clio Dynamics is awesome or Clio Dynamics is, is trash. Yeah. It's a lot, a lot of times it's a discussion about to what extent these kinds of exercises are useful or accurate. Right. Yeah. So another person who felt the same way uh, is Herbert Gentis, uh, and this is a retired economist working out of UMass Amherst, who also doubts that Clio Dynamics can be used to predict specific events. But he does think the patterns and causal connections within it can reveal lessons for policymakers. So he's essentially arguing this is something that people who are constructing policy in our government should be paying attention to. And then the last person here I have here is Harvey Whitehouse, who's an anthropologist at the University of Oxford, and he oversees the construction of a database on rituals, social structures, and conflict around the globe. Now, he believes this research can complement the approach of cleodynamics by shedding light on the triggers of political violence. In his argument, this violence happens when individuals strongly identify with a political group. And that identification is cemented through what he calls rituals. And these can be frightening and painful. And the reason why is the more frightening and painful they are, the stronger the shared memories they create are. Mm. This sounds very familiar to yeah. us. Uh, we are, you know, we're trying to keep this episode evergreen, but we are actually recording this the weekend after the uh, riot events in Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, where, it, you know, there were uh, collisions between, uh, I guess, white nationalist protesters and counter protesters. And there was a woman killed by uh, a, a car that drove into a number of the participants in this. Uh, it's It was super upsetting. It's still super upsetting. And as I'm reading about Clio Dynamics and these applications of it, it seems to be like a moment that will obviously join this data set, which sounds yeah. sounds somewhat unemotional, right? Uh, because th- these are like real people that it's affecting. But it, it also makes me wonder, like, how can this how, – how could could we have predicted events like this? Or can we trace back why events like this are happening yeah, exactly. Because again, it's 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 not just about knowing where we're going. It's it's about being able to take control of it, being able to sort of take control of the wheel to a certain extent. All right, let's take a break, and when we come back, let's jump into this fifty-year cycle, this fifty-year scale. All right, we're back. 
So yeah, so Turchin is actually the one who came up with the 50-year scale. And this is the one that's getting conflated with the 80-year scale that's making the rounds on the internet right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll explain all that later, but let's talk about what he actually means with this 50-year scale. So the theory goes, he calls this the father and son scale. Okay. Uh, the theory goes that every 50 years, there's a moment of violent upheaval in the United States. And he looks at this as beginning in 1870 with the Civil War. Then in 1920, there was violence over labor and race. Then again in 1970, we had the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. So he's arguing that 2020 is around when we're going to have our next cycle and basically saying everybody needs to prepare themselves. We're going to go through another moment of turmoil. You know, I um, I, I don't want to criticize this this because I, obviously there are a number of issues going on. But, I mean, instantly yeah. you think to yourself, oh – I'm glad there was that stretch of a relative peace between 1920 uh, and the and the and 1970. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously that's when we had the, World War the, the II, two great wars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's not tracking events like that because they aren't, uh, I guess, specifically within the borders of the United States. So that's hmm. an interesting. But you're making a really interesting counter argument here, which is like, what's the Venn diagram of overlap of global events on top of this, right? Right. And then you, I guess you can also say, too, all right, you have these key moments you know, generationally where you have all these factors coming together and opening us up for the, the potential for unrest. But I guess there's also going to be this um, this possibility for cascading effects. And I imagine right. you could apply that to uh, to, the, you know, the decades to follow 1920. He sort of addresses that. And I'll get to that in the future because he calls that's part of his 200 year scale. Ah. But uh, let's wrap up the 50 year scale. It's kind of like cicadas, see. I guess. Right? It is. Yeah. yeah, actually, that's a good that's and a good it, one. Times you're going to have like two different broods of cicadas emerging at the same time. Exactly. So he argues all of this in a published article in a July 2012 issue of the Journal of Peace Research, and he believes the model that he presents there suggests that violence will be even worse in 2020 because of, quote, demographic variables such as wages, standards of living, and a number of measures of intra-elite confrontation. Now, his reasoning for all of this is that there's a period of sustained explosive violence, and then that is usually followed and maintained as peace for around 20 to 30 years until a new generation arises. And this generation hasn't experienced any of the horrors of the previous generations. So Turchin thinks that this cycle occurs every two generations or every 40 to 60 years. So that's why he places it smack in the middle there with the 50-year cycle. This is why he calls it the father's and son's cycle, which is a little gendered. But the idea here is that the father responds violently to perceived social justice, and then their son lives with that legacy of conflict and abstains. But with the third generation, the cycle begins again. Now, Turchin compares this to a forest fire, and he says it'll burn out until underbrush accumulates, and then the cycle recommences again. Okay, I, I can definitely follow that. Yeah, yeah. I, I like looking at my life and how my lifespan has played against the the cycles that he's outlining. I can see this, you know, like I was born just after the civil rights movement, just after Vietnam. I learned from my parents that those events were catastrophic and that it was, you know, essentially I learned to try to be peaceful as, as he's uh, arguing here. And then I think we're seeing like the generation, maybe two generations behind you and I are, uh, they didn't, they didn't have those lessons. Right. And so subsequently they're sort of feeling the pressures of economy really is what Mm -hmm. it comes down to with Turchin's arguments uh, upon themselves and then looking for a scapegoat. Yeah. I mean, I have thought a lot in the past about what it means to be entering into an age in which there are no, uh, you know, fewer and then ultimately no firsthand accounts of the second world war. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That totally ties into this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he also identifies the cause as get this, Political entrepreneurs who are trying to get power, there are people who are already in the elite, but they want to overturn the political order to better suit themselves. Does this sound familiar, anybody? And he says that this subsequently has a historical precedent of leading to revolution. But hold on a second. You're probably saying to yourself, 
wait a minute, there was no peak in the 1820s. If this fits a 50-year model, if I go back to the 1820s, there wasn't any upheaval then. Why? And he says, actually, that's because the social variables like wages and, and employment were excellent at that time. So he's looking at 2020 and he's thinking that our current polarization here in the United States and the current amount of inequality we're experiencing will reach a peak and our discourse and political class will become even more fragmented than it already is uh. right now. In addition, he finds uh, things that are, are indicators are corruption increase and political cooperation unraveling right before there are these big periods of instability or violence that are imminent. And again, this sounds eerily familiar. I, I guess I should try to place this too. So the article was written in 2012. He started talking about this stuff back in, what, what did I say, 97, 99? Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's been talking about this for a while now. And now here we are in 2017, and we're experiencing a lot of the things that he predicted. I'm not saying that that necessarily means for I agree with his 2020 prediction or I agree with this model, but it is kind of scary how a lot of this is playing out. So uh, remember that other Clio Dynamics speaker I mentioned earlier, Harvey Whitehouse? He says that if Turchin's prediction of unrest in the United States is correct, we can actually expect to see an increase in tightly knit groups who use rituals with a threatening quality, but these rituals also promise great rewards for their members. And again, I have to remind us, we're recording this a couple days after Charlottesville, and that describes that to a T. It is a group with a threatening quality that's promising great rewards to its members. Well, what's the great reward in that case, I wonder? Well, I think that I the, mean, the idea... I mean, you're just talking about greatness. They, it, it, so uh, I've told a lot of people about this. There, Vice actually made a video on the ground there that's about mm-hmm. like 20, 25 minutes long. I, it's super upsetting, but I highly recommend watching it to sort of get a a first-hand account of what's going on there. When you when you watch the people in these groups talking about why they're there, a lot of it is about – it comes down to uh, a cultural reclamation of the country and economic. Like they feel like something's been taken away from them that they deserve. And so I think that's what the groups are sort of promising is like if you participate in this, you will reap rewards in the end. Mm. Okay, so there's a, you're talking about like the, the return of say jobs, uh, so you know that yeah. manufacturing jobs in particular that may not actually uh, be coming back. Then you're talking about uh, like a, some sort of a, a cultural focus that uh, that either you know previously was in place or is misremembered as being uh, you know more central than it was. Yeah, exactly. In fact, like there's there's an idea along these lines. So remember that 1820s example that sort of like. If we can, as a entire society and with our government, get it together and try to pull together our, for instance, make our wages better and make sure everybody's employed, that would be something that could stave this off. But basically the argument is like there's so much chaos going on with all of this this complex system at work right now that people like Turchin doubt that that's possible at this point. Now, Turchin also identifies three kinds of violence that he said leads to these upheavals. He calls these group-on-group violence. This is when you see riots in modern-day America, just like what we were just talking about. There's groups against individuals, and his, his example of this is lynchings. And then there's individuals against groups, which we refer to as rampage killings. Now, Turchin makes a point that we could identify a person killing a group by themselves as terrorism, except he he needs to make it specific here in America – when this violence is an American on American, we tend not to talk about it in terms of terrorism. So his examples are the Dark Knight shooting in Aurora or Timothy McVeigh. These are usually rampage attacks that are directed at institutions like education or government. And Turchin says they've grown by a factor of 20 in the last generation. So this is actually – I have to provide a personal note aside here. This is why I find it – 
really troubling when I see a positive reaction to violence against white supremacists or white mm-hmm. nationalists. You're talking about the like punching Nazis thing. Yeah, there's a lot of this on the internet. There was a lot of this right after uh, that one. I, I don't remember this guy's name, but that that one guy who's like a leader of one of these groups got punched in the head earlier this year, and everybody was sort of with Schadenfreude laughing at him, mm-hmm. and then. Uh, you know, after this weekend, there's just a, a, an increase of rhetoric from people who I'm friends and family with that are saying like, yeah, this is great. Let's get them, you know, and, and the, the rhetoric of using violence really troubles me. And especially because it comes right back to what Turchin's saying. He's saying, if you allow these three types of violence to grow, it's going to lead to this upheaval where it's going to be even worse. And eye for an eye makes the world go blind, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you actually have something here that's a quote of hope after that, uh, maybe 10 minutes of dour, <laughs> dour research predictions. Well, I, yeah, I have a couple of quotes here. The first one is from, uh, Sergei A. Nefedov, who I mentioned earlier, one of the uh, co-authors, uh, with the uh, Turchin. And he said, uh, in his, uh, Ian Magazine piece, quote, we are rapidly approaching a historical cusp in which the U.S. will be particularly vulnerable to violent upheaval. This prediction is not a prophecy. I don't believe that disaster is preordained, no matter what we do. On the contrary, if we understand the causes, we have a chance to prevent it from happening. But the first thing we have to do is reverse the trend of ever-growing inequality. And then uh, Turchin himself uh, said, The descent is not inevitable. We can avoid the worst, perhaps by switching to a less harrowing track, perhaps by redesigning the roller coaster altogether. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I don't know if I 100% subscribe to Turchin's version of Clio Dynamics, but mm-hmm. it does seem a lot more grounded in quantitative data to me than, than other sort of predictive factors. I've talked about on the show before about how my father thought the world was going to end like two years ago, and he uh-huh. was like absolutely certain that there were, it was exactly like this, but it also, it like in, included historical events tied into religious predictions, mm-hmm. and he was certain the world was going to end. And this is also like, uh, 2012, when we thought like the Mayan predictions were going to come true, right? Well, not we, but you know, there there was a lot of talk about about that. Like, oh, is is the world going to end in 2012 because the Mayans predicted it? It's on these calendars. Yeah, I mean, and of course, this comes back to weather forecasts again. You know, yep. it, it didn't rain on Wednesday, but they were saying it was gonna gonna rain on Wednesday back when I checked the weather on uh, Sunday. That doesn't mean that the the forecast was not uh, based on uh, scientific principles and and uh, and accepted patterns. Yeah, but uh, there are just too many factors to properly chart. So, and and to throw another wrench into the works, this is where Turchin starts talking about the two hundred year scale. And you alluded to this earlier with the paper you referenced. He calls this the secular cycle, um, and he talks about how there's these two types of cycles. There's the fifty year wave that we were just talking about. Then there's a longer term oscillation that repeats every two hundred to three hundred years, and Depending on how these land, they can augment or suppress those 50-year peaks. So his examples are the Roman Empire, medieval France, and ancient China, with societies swinging between peace and conflict every 100 to 150 years. And he sees the United States as a similar society to these previous empires. So he's predicting that it will follow the same route. Now, he and his associates, like I said, they call this the secular cycle. They say it starts out first with an egalitarian society where supply and demand for labor is roughly balanced out. But then what happens is as the population grows, labor begins to outstrip demands. Subsequently, you get elite classes that form. This allows living standards for the poor to fall. Society becomes top-heavy with elites who start fighting for power. And then political instability ensues and leads subsequently to collapse. So his example of this, actually going back to that other example earlier, is the Egyptian uprising of 2011. He says you saw an interaction of the two cycles there explaining events uh, in Egypt. Uh, so he said, it seemed like Egypt's economy was growing and that poverty levels were low. So you would have assumed that there would be stability. But he argues that in a decade leading up to the revolution, the country actually saw four times its amount of graduates come out with no employment prospects. So for Turchin, it ultimately boils down, this is kind of like a Marxist prediction, right? Like it's mm-hmm. based on economic factors, how many workers you have, how many jobs are available, how much money they've spent on education and so on. 
All right. On that note, let's take one more break. And when we come back, we'll uh, we'll discuss uh, Clio Dynamics a little bit more and then get into some of the some of the criticisms and critiques. All right, we're back. So Turchin, he's actually taken the models of Clio Dynamics and applied them as well to models of religious growth. Huh. Now, one model he looks at here is linear, and he says – as believers start seeing the light, quote unquote, the religion will start to grow, right? But then he's got another model and he says religion can grow like a contagion sometime where uh, converts increase exponentially. And so what he says is he's he's mapped conversions uh, for Islam in medieval Iran and Spain and found that the data fits the contagion model more closely than it does the linear model there. Likewise, he argues that there's models that explain the expansion of Christianity in the first century AD and uh, Mormonism here in the U.S. since World War II. So that's also pretty interesting. Again, I don't know. I, I feel like you really have to drill down deep to determine like how – methodologically sound this is. Yeah. Um, but there is, like we said, like there's this growing group of academics who are writing about it and researching it and, and accumulating data to try to see if it, if it pans out. You know, in researching all of this, I am once again in my life, um, disappointed that I have not read Isaac Asimov's uh, foundation books oh. because I know that uh, what I know of the books uh, without getting in too deep because I don't want to spoil myself is that it does concern predictive models of the future mm-hmm. and, uh, and and does so uh, you know in great depth because it's Isaac Asimov so of course of course yeah, he put a lot of thought right. into it uh, but sadly I've not I have not read those and did not have time to read them before this recording uh, but I would love to hear from anyone out there who has read the foundation series and and uh, and has related insight on this topic. Yeah, I'm curious if uh, if those Asimov seems like the kind of guy who would explore through fiction like the arguments against these mm-hmm. kind of predictive models, right? Because one thing that people are concerned about is if you apply these predictive models and then you start using them on a policy level through government, then what happens when the predictive model says, oh, things are going to get dire in 2020 and the government suddenly becomes like really dictatorial trying to make sure that that uh that negative outcome doesn't happen right so yeah. it's sort of, you get like a minority report kind of situation yeah it's kind of like envisioning okay you're you're predicting the weather you're basing it on the natural state of the atmosphere and weather patterns and of course you're factoring in uh, a human influence on the weather pattern patterns but if you reach the point where then humans can uh, can and are intentionally altering the weather so like you know i guess like blasting tornadoes out of the sky or yeah. turning off hurricanes or diverting them uh, then you're you're having to factor uh, intentional human interaction uh, into the overall simulation and forecast for the atmosphere. Yeah. Wow. That's true. So that would really, that would be another factor added on to Clio dynamics then is trying to figure out outside of the predictive models, then what the influence of humans using the predictive models upon the actual events would do to change the predictions. I think so. Yeah. I mean, if you have individuals who understand how it was working and are manipulating it, yeah. then they have to factor that in. It's kind of like if you have one wizard in the world who can uh, bend uh, uh, natural law to their will, then that's one thing. Yeah. But then what if you have two wizards? Right. And, uh, it seems like that uh, that just uh, doubles the complexity of the scenario. Well, there is another wizard here, uh, but he's not Turchin. And he, so his name's Charles Hugh Smith, and he writes for Business Insider. And I don't know necessarily that he considers himself – a Clio dynamicist? Is that what you would refer to them as? Clio dam- dy- dam- <laughs> Dynamos? Dynamo? Yeah, yeah maybe. Uh, so Smith, uh, he's written about this in, like I said, Business Insider and in his own books. He has a website that's full of this stuff too, the, all of his theories. And he argues there are other reasons why we're looking at seeing trouble somewhere between, he says, 2020 or 2022. Whew, so we can put it off a couple of years. That'd be that's nice. how he's framing it. I want to get yeah. all the Avatar sequels in before uh, this happens, that's, if at all possible. What is that, four or five movies? Man, Cameron yeah. better start cranking those out. So Smith says there's four grand cycles. And let me be clear, that 80-year cycle that we were talking about that's floating around right now, that is one of these four grand cycles. Now, 
the, that first one is uh, it's a generational cycle of 80 years that's every four generations and it is said to lead to nation changing social political and economic upheaval this is referenced in a book called the fourth turning by Willem Strauss or William Strauss and Neil Howe and it also argues that after 80 years there are few humans who can actually recall the last crisis so uh, yeah. your example of World War II there now this is the one that that's currently making the rounds uh, it, it's part of Hughes' sort of thing. His other cycles included here that we're going to hit peak oil, where there will be a depletion of the global economy's reliance on fossil fuels, that credit expansion and contraction will transition from a bubble to a collapse, and that's subsequently going to lead to a global depression. And I, I have to say, from other articles, like all of this – doesn't really seem to be quantitatively mapped the same way that Turchin and other Cleodynamos are. Uh, this seems to be more based on uh, him citing other books, and he that includes Turchin's work. He does yeah. cite Turchin's work, but he's providing observational qualitative examples. Uh, and the last, the last factor he throws in here is a hundred year cycle of price inflation that is met by a stagnation of wages. So this, this seems a little bit closer to what Turchin's talking about here. That leads to shortages, famine, and crisis. He says this is because humanity as a species tries to expand into every ecological niche when food and energy supplies are rising. And so this, he calls a hundred year cycle of rising prices for food, energy, and water. Uh, and, and Smith's argument is essentially the government might be able to deal with any one of these things, but four of these things at once might prove to be too much for any institution of human beings. So I don't know where I really fall in terms of these arguments. Like, if you apply traditional syllogistic logic to these arguments, do they, mm -hmm. do they still hold up? Does the evidence for these claims actually warrant a connection between them? I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. So I, I want to throw that out there. This is just, we're accumulating and presenting to you the variations on these cyclical theories. All right. Well, let's, let's get into some of the, the arguments against cleodynamics, some of the critiques of cleodynamics so that we can, you know, maybe weigh this out a little bit. Right. So some people are arguing that the mathematical models may simply be a case of seeing patterns in random data. So, so once again, the, the hindsight is 2020. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then also the data set that Turchin is working with has been criticized for being too short because it only covers a period from 1780 to 2010. So maybe cleodynamics does work, but humanity probably needs to rack up another couple centuries of good record keeping before we can actually apply it in any sense. Hmm. Uh, also, historians in general argue that cleodynamics weakness uh, is that when it attempts to make predictions based on trends, when historical information's availability is usually patchy at best, right? So our records are preserved or destroyed based on chance. For instance, see our palimpsests episode, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and knowledge tends to pool around narrow subject areas. The example that immediately comes to mind for me on this pop culture-wise is The Strain. I have uh, started watching The Strain again. Oh, man, I need to pick it back up. I'm yeah. on – final season now. Well, I'm actually – I'm watching season three. I haven't okay. hit the final season yet. But yeah, uh, they've got that book, The Lumen – that yes, is like yeah. the book of all the answers on how to deal with these vampires. How to kill, translates to how to kill vampires. Basically, yeah. 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 And it's like they're facing in the world of the strain this, this total upheaval as vampires start taking over the world mm -hmm. and killing off the human race. But the only record of how to deal with this is in this one book that takes two seasons to find. Yeah. <laughs> and then they find it and it takes another season to translate it. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that's like, you know, that's obviously a fictional example. But to be fair, you know, our record keeping is, hasn't been that great until recently. Yeah, actually a recent – by the time this publishes, it will be a recent episode. But Joe and I did an episode on Greek fire, mm -hmm. the, the Byzantine secret weapon. Uh, so s secret, in fact, that uh, that it's a mystery uh, regarding exactly what it entailed in terms of formula and uh, the system of deployment. Yeah, yeah. Well, you just have to go under King's Landing. That's where it's all kept. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> all right. So I, I mentioned the 2020, you know, hindsight is 2020 thing because, again, that's one of the criticisms here, that it's one thing to inflict cyclical order on the past. 
because historians have been doing this for ages, right? Even our systems of, system of years, our classification of ages and empires, our boiling down of um, of the past into narratives is is ultimately a form of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then plus there's always the potential impact of unforeseen events that buck perceived patterns. So we've talked a lot about outside context events, uh, you know, the, the terminology coined by Ian M. Banks before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's also a similar notion explored in black swan theory. So this was uh, this is an idea that came from uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and uh, he he uh, he takes this the, the name of this black swan theory from the fact that before the discovery of Australia. Scientific observations suggested that all swans were white. Huh. Okay. There was no such thing as a black swan as there uh, was a, you know, no more than there was a green or a purple one. But then the European explorers discovered the world down under and they discovered black swans. Mm -hmm. So that which was, you know, possible, but but uh, had not been uh, observed yet uh, became reality. Okay. So the black swan here was an outlier, existing beyond the realm of reasonable expectation. But the human mind uh, depends on pattern recognition. So Taleb writes in uh, his black swan book that we humans uh, think up explanations for an outlier's occurrence after we encounter it to make it explainable and predictable. So, you know, the idea here is that we're looking back in time, we're looking at history, and we're just reinterpreting black swan events as being something that could have been predicted and foreseen and therefore thinking huh. they will be foresee, uh, perceive, perceivable and predictable in our future. But by their very nature, outliers are unpredictable. And according uh, to, to uh, Talib, uh, this implies the inability to predict the course of history, given how much outliers uh, – uh, have uh, impacted our past, such as he brings up uh, the 1987 uh, uh, market crash, right. the demise of the Soviet bloc, uh, the uh, September 11th, uh, 2001 terrorist attacks, how these drastically informed the shape of human events, but were not necessarily predictable. Now, that's, of course, you can get into a whole argument about to what degree uh, yeah. these were predictable, but that's kind of playing into his argument to saying that, again, you look back Hindsight is twenty twenty. It's one thing to look back and say, "No, this was predictable." Look at these patterns. But are you just informing? Are you are you just enforcing a pattern on the past? Right. Now, all of this being said, I want to stress what I restress what I said earlier is that there you don't see a lot of people saying, "Oh, cleodynamics is just is just all uh, crap." Just throw right. it all out. The, generally, the argument is, I don't think that these models are as uh, precise as you would want them to be. Or that we can predict the future as well as uh, as the proponents of cleodynamics are claiming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And also, like this isn't uh, again bringing it back to Minority Report. It's not like if we get cleodynamics just right, we're going to have the equivalent of psychics in a bathtub that tell us, right. you know, when crimes are going to be committed. Like, uh, and even that, as we've seen in that Philip K. Dick story, is fraught with peril. Right. So where does that leave us at the end here? Well. I think what we have to ask, and I'm asking you too, listeners, is this a valid scientific method? Like, like is cleodynamics something we should be continuing to look into? And like, should we be following what's going on in this journal? Uh, and then how does, you know, somebody like uh, Smith, for instance, like how do his predictions, which don't seem to be as, as grounded in data sets, how do, how do those play together with it? So I'm curious about that, but then also, Many of you, like myself, are probably wondering during these events of turmoil we're experiencing now, how do we prevent this violence, right? Well, Turchin, he says, if I'm right, this is how I think we can help things. He argues, first of all, inequality is almost always a bad thing for societies. So he says to prevent violence, we have to learn from history. And to do that, we need to create more jobs for our graduates while acting decisively to reduce inequality. But others are arguing maybe a revolution, maybe uprisings. These are for the best because they can remedy social stresses. For example, people look back at the civil rights movement and they say, was that a bad thing? What came out of the civil rights movement is, quote, good, right? But there were certainly violent upheaval and turmoil during that period of time well, as well. I guess it depends on what 
up, what uh, uprising you're looking at, because yeah. certainly, you know, it's one thing to say, uh, you know, the civil rights movement was it was a positive movement, but nobody wants an uprising, say, like the the kind we see in The Handman's Tale. Yeah, exactly. And I think, too, like when you're talking about it in those terms, like it's sort of like talking about a fever burning an illness out of your body. Right. And, yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I try to, as much as possible, I try to fall back on non- nonviolence. And so any ways in which we can try to avoid that, look, I, I'm going to be supportive of. So I look at this and I see what Turchin's saying. It doesn't sound illogical to me. It sounds like, yeah, sure. If there were more jobs available for graduates in this country, that would be great. I don't, I don't know how to do that, right? And then how do you reduce inequality across a broad band, you know? I mean, it's something we've been working on for decades now. We get into some of those wicked problems, right? Exactly. Yeah. So if you don't know what we're speaking of there, we have another episode similar to this one, actually kind of looking at broader sociological issues about a theory called wicked problems. If you go to stuff to blow your mind.com type in wicked problems, that episode will come up or you can find it on any of your uh, podcast readers. Yeah. But it does get into a lot of the, a lot of the similar territory here. Right. So I would highly recommend that episode. If you uh, found this episode uh, very thought, let's try to, uh, on the landing page for this episode, let's try to link back yes, to wicked problems. Definitely. Okay. So, uh, I asked you that question. Do you think it's a valid scientific method? If you do, if you don't, there's ways to let us know we're on social media. You can talk Talk to us about Clio Dynamics on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We also have our Facebook discussion module up where uh, if you want to have just like a closed conversation with people who are like fans of the the podcast specifically, it's a closed group on Facebook. Uh, try to join us over there. You can find the link to that on our Facebook page, right? Yeah. And you know, I just in all of this, I do want to stress that I think there is optimism in this topic. Yeah. Um, you know, if, the very fact that people are doing this research lends to optimism. Yeah, I so I would I would encourage everyone to to take take the optimistic side of this because for starters, optimism is a place of action. You can you can act out of optimism. Uh, it's it's often very difficult to act in any constructive way out of a state of pessimism. Yeah. So uh, so yeah, take take this as you know individuals who are trying to use the best tools uh, available to us to figure out where we're going and how how to get to the places we want to go, how to avoid all the strife, you know, and and, and maybe even get to that point where we eventually have some sort of a post scarcity society and we'll be. Uh, arguably largely immune to some of these uh, societal pitfalls. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I think you said that perfectly. All right. And uh, yeah, finally, if you want to get in touch with us directly, then you know which email address to turn to. That is blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.